Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. They're not just telling you what positions they've got. They're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, can you tell I'm just a little bit excited about this week? <laughs> or are you just a little bit done talking about crypto? One or the other, I can't tell. Well, where, where is your temperature right now? Like, are you fatigued on this topic? Because I, I think, as you know, I catch a lot of flack for my um, incessant coverage of this. I think I've basically branded myself as the Bitcoin ETF guy. So I'll be honest, I'm just embracing this now. right? But do I owe you an apology here? Not not at all. I, I actually managed to take a couple weeks off. So I managed to miss most of the last two weeks shenanigans, uh, which was a great uh, it was a great relief to be away from. But also what an entertaining sandbox to jump back into after two weeks. So much has happened. Uh, so much both validation and sort of, you know, creative destruction happening. I don't want to minimize the real pain that the drawdown has had for a lot of folks. I'm not doing that at all. Obviously, folks are losing their jobs and things like that. Uh, but hey, it's absolutely still the most interesting thing going on in finance. And that's kind of my job at Vetify is paying attention to all that stuff. Well, I think there's a lot of different directions we can head. But um, I, I think we have to start with a speech last week from SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce, uh, a.k.a. Crypto yeah. Mom. So she delivered some very fiery remarks at the Regulatory Transparency Project Conference on regulating the new crypto ecosystem necessary regulation or crippling future innovation. Say that a few times quickly. That's quite the <laughs> conference name. But I, I think most people who follow the ETF space are uh, well aware Hester has been an outspoken proponent of a spot Bitcoin ETF and really uh, advocating for crypto as a whole. Now, of course, as you were alluding to, this speech does come with a backdrop of a uh, complete bloodbath in crypto right now, where I would say the lack of regulation is uh, being exposed, right? And we can get into that if you want. But but let's just start with your initial impressions of this speech. Were, were you as blown away by it as I was? I wasn't blown away by the fact that she was taking these positions, right? She's been very vocal, uh, you know, for the last four or five years on this issue. Um, it was one of the most direct sort of assaults on the SEC's reaction to crypto um, that I've read anywhere, honestly. And so to hear it coming from a commissioner was very surprising. Um, I think in its in its brevity and its pointedness, uh, it was it was a bit of a sea change because this was not a uh, you know, their disagreements and we're, you know, taking things under advisement. They had none of the somewhat hedgy language she has often used in the past and was really just a direct assault on the process her own organization has taken uh, with receipts. I mean, you know, <laughs> one of the things I love about, you know, speeches coming from federal, federal regulators is they're often published in advance and are fully footnoted, which obviously you don't get when you hear it live. Uh, but this had the receipts. It was line by line by line here here's where we screwed this up. Here's why this doesn't make sense. Here's the here's laid bare our own hypocrisy. And I think that's what was surprising, just how direct it was. You wonder what SEC chair Gary Gensler thinks seeing a speech like this. I mean, it does seem unusual to see an SEC commissioner in Hester Pierce this outspoken against the agency's overall stance on something as high profile as crypto. And, and I would say, at least from my perspective, she's been 100% respectful in the way she's gone about it. It's not like she's venomous out there. And, but, but you're right, she has the receipts. And I just feel like um, 
a government agency would really prefer having their people all rowing in the same direction. Uh, so I, I found it odd just how fiery this was. Let, let me ask you this, as it pertains to a spot Bitcoin ETF in particular, which really was the thrust of, of this speech. And I tweeted this out last week. Um, to me, the single most important part was one sentence. And I want to read that for you. So Hester said, quote, the commission's willingness to be persuaded turns on whether the commission's primary concern is legal and logical coherence with our approvals of Bitcoin futures products and other commodity-based products and not, say, using the prospect of a spot Bitcoin ETP approval as an inducement to get exchanges to come in and register. So in other words, I read that as Hester saying, look, basically there's no uh, legal reason not to approve a spot Bitcoin ETF, but the SEC is sort of holding back that approval as a way to get crypto exchanges to come in and, and, and be regulated. Do you think that's what this all boils down to? I, I think that's, well, certainly I'm not going to disagree with the commissioner on what she thinks the SEC's motivations are, right? She has a much, she has a much clearer view into that coffee shop than I do. Um, however, you know, I think uh, in pointing out the hypocrisy really around this key issue about 40 Act protection, that's where she really dug in hard. And, and I appreciated how detailed she was in that because a lot of times public speeches like this, uh, regulators are reluctant to get deep into the weeds, but she called out very explicitly hey, we leaned on this 40 Act protection stuff for a long time. Then we just approved a non-40 Act futures-based product. We've clearly now proven we don't care about the 40 Act uh, pieces of this, which means what is left, right? It is, it is a bit of this sort of open, uh, almost sort of a brutality towards regulation through enforcement, which is something to be clear, she has been against her whole career. Um, you know, she comes from a think tank background where she spent a lot of her efforts trying to sort of remove regulation through enforcement and and sort of the what, what she is perceived and, and what many perceive as, as sort of excessive uh, or sort of regulatory fiat, uh, not to confuse that word. Um, so I appreciated that she went there. Um, I didn't get the sense that this was all hanging on that one issue. I think it is all hanging on this issue about manipulation and surveillance, right? She lays out that case very clearly. We've heard that over and over again in both responses and uh, you know some public statements. This issue about whether or not the underlying can be manipulated and how to prove it won't be is, is I think, been the whole shoot and match for a long time. And she laid out very clearly the two paths. One is everybody has to come in and prove that they're both big enough and willing to be surveilled, or you have to prove that there is some sort of inherent non-manipulatability in the underlying, both of which are ridiculously high bars, honestly. Um, so so whether we get there or not, I, I don't actually think this moves the needle. I don't think this suddenly, um, her being this much more direct means we're going to see an approval next week. Uh, but I do think it lays out the groundwork for lawsuits. And really, I think this gets back into just regulation across the entire space. And on that note, do you think the current uh, crypto market environment changes anything here? Because we are seeing some huge blowups in the crypto space. Investors are losing a boatload of money. Do you think that might accelerate uh, the regulatory process here? Which you and I have talked about this in, pa in the past. It's moved extremely <laughs> slow up until this point. Uh, the government doesn't move swiftly, but does the current crypto environment maybe light a fire here? 
Yeah, I you know I, I think with a little bit of perspective, uh, I think we have to think about what's really happened in crypto. Sure, uh, you know the value of a Bitcoin is now what are we at twenty one thousand something like that. We dipped under the magic twenty thousand level and came back. When she published the speech, she mentioned the price was twenty two fifty, right? So it, it that damage had already been done when she was starting to make the speech. Um, I don't think that this somehow makes a huge difference, largely because despite the sell-off, the true carnage has happened in what I would call some of the more corner case parts of the crypto ecosystem. Um, a lot of stuff is still working. Um, it's not like every uh, crypto project all of, a sudden, all of a sudden failed. Instead, what we saw, whether it was what went on with Luna or Solana or you know any of the, the sort of number of hiccups we've had here, we've learned a bunch of stuff. And I actually think that's very positive. Right. Part of the reason DeFi has been such an interesting sandbox is because we've been able to test some of these hypotheses about, you know, whether or not your protocol is whale proof. Well, we've seen a lot of stuff around that, particularly around Solana over the last couple of days. Um, you know, uh, the importance of actually having rule of law and collateralization of, of multi-asset uh, uh, multi-asset systems like stable coins. I think we'll see some movement there because of that. I think I've been saying, Nate, I think the last year I've been saying I think stablecoin regulation is probably the first real shoe to drop. I think that is more likely now perhaps than it was a month ago. But I don't think this changes the entire landscape just because we've had a pullback. No, I agree. I know it's a cliche example that a lot of people have used, but I think there are really strong parallels here to the dot-com bubble where you, you, you had a lot of froth in the space, but you had remarkable innovation at the same time. And it, it took a cleansing of the system for the best parts of that innovation to, to make their way up to the, uh, you know, to the surface, so to speak. So I, I think that's what yeah, we're seeing here. This is the space is not going away. Yeah, and I think also one of the things, one another parallel from the dot com era, which I think is a positive, um, is one of the things that got that, that sort of happened in two thousand, where things got ahead of themselves, was everything became about making money very quickly, and that's exactly what happened in crypto in the last couple of years. Capital became everything. Experimentation was only happening in the service of fast moving, fast buck ecosystems. Um, that's kind of what happened in two thousand in the dot com era too. We needed to shake some of that out of the trees, if you will, back then. I think we've shaken a lot of that out of the trees now. Uh, and what survives there, I mean, it, it is a bit of a cliche to say, you know, you go through fire and you come out stronger, all that jazz. But but there's some truth to it, too. You know, like I, I, a couple articles I was reading this weekend sort of pointing out some of these sort of quieter crypto projects doing cross-border payments for energy and food and like like legit applications. They're not sexy because they're not 20% yield farming systems, but there's still a lot of great applications here. And we're learning a lot about how to harden systems and about how to make those systems support a, an intended utility, not just to develop a network effect. All right. With our remaining time here, um, as I've been known to do sometimes when you're on the podcast, I did solicit some Twitter questions for us to get to. And as always, people came through, which I appreciate. Thank you for those who uh, submitted questions. Um, but no surprise, Dave, given the people who follow me, we did get a number of crypto and Bitcoin ETF <laughs> questions. So I made a uh, an editorial decision here to focus on these, especially given Hester's speech and everything going on in crypto. I'll be talking with uh, Mark Yusko here in a few minutes on crypto. Um, however, before I get to those questions, I just want to be clear. You, you were alluding to this earlier, and I think I'm 99.9% .9 sure I know your answer. But the SEC does have a decision to make on two spot Bitcoin ETF filings over the next, uh, what, two weeks or so. So there's one from Bitwise, 
I believe a decision is due on that by June 29th. And then Grayscale has their filing to convert the uh, Bitcoin trust GBTC into an ETF. The deadline on that is July 6th. So j- just to, to set the table here, do you see any chance either or both of those is approved? No, I think they both get rejected. And I think the important one is the Grayscale one, because I think when that gets rejected, they probably sort of finalize filing their Administrative Procedures Act lawsuit um, against the SEC, which is when things start getting really interesting, to be honest. Okay, so that's perfect. Right? No, because that's actually, see, you you led me right into this. So uh, we one of the questions we got was from a Slapdash, at Slapdash, and they asked the following. Let, let me read this to you. Assuming the SEC rejects Grayscale's ETF application and there's a lawsuit from Grayscale, how quickly might you expect a court decision? They also asked, what's the range of outcomes and timelines? Have there been similar uh, cases out there? And so a a lot of questions here, but I'll just boil this down for you in in, in that, you know, what will you be watching for if Grayscale does move forward with a lawsuit? What, What can we all expect from this? Well, nobody should expect anything to happen quickly, right? <laughs> That's the first thing. Once it gets into the court system, we're now talking about a multi-year process, right? Because the, they've, I believe the, I'm not a lawyer, super, you know, disclaimer, right? But but I follow a lot of regulatory legal issues for a living. Um, I believe they have to file in federal district first, right? That's where these cases are brought. Um, yes, this happens quite frequently. And in fact, the SEC has been sued quite a few times in the last few years and not done very well. I would say, actually, they've been a bit on their heels. Um, There's a court case going right up now against the Supreme Court um, at the Supreme Court, which is not on this specific issue. It's not a specific, you know, APA filing. But they all come down to this issue of how much capriciousness, how much latitude do regulators have to enact regulation X, a legislative intent, meaning without Congress saying go do X, how much room does the SEC to effectively make up new rules and then enforce them? And does it matter which they do first? Can they enforce something and then say that was the rule? Um, there's actually a lot of precedent that that gives enormous latitude to regulatory agencies. The Chevron is the big Supreme Court case that sort of backs up a lot of that. Um, And there have been a number of other ones, too. Uh, I think that this could uh, be a big case if it went, but it would be multi-year because it would have to go to the Supreme Court before anybody would actually make a decision here, um, short of, uh, uh, you know, a settlement of some sort. But I I can't see that. Settlements tend to go the other way when the SEC sues somebody else. Here, effectively, they'd be being accused of abusing their regulatory authority, you know, extending their mandate beyond what Congress intended. Uh, And that's a real tough thing to prove. It's worth pointing out that the sort of newly benched justices and Clarence Thomas have been pretty against Chevron and all of those sort of regulatory um, sort of deference uh, precedents. Uh, so it's the kind of thing they might really want to get their you know their teeth into if it got that far. I'm not sure I see it dragging out for three or four years and becoming giant Supreme Court precedent. It could. I think it's more likely we actually end up with some decent crypto regulation before that. No, I agree. I mean, if it's going to be tied up in the courts for several years, we may just have a spot Bitcoin ETF. Yeah, I think I think I think we solve these problems before we get through all of that. That being said, I think it's a really interesting issue. This issue of um, you know regulators and separate justice systems and uh, you know trying to sort of regulate through enforcement. I think these are real issues for the modern world. 
Um, and there, there, there are issues that surprisingly cross a lot of boundaries. Both the left and the right have been on both sides of these issues, depending on which court case you want to look at. By the way, going back to uh, Hester's speech, I, I said this on Twitter, but I can't help but wonder if a speech like that from an SEC commissioner could actually um, help Grayscale, right? Like, like, I'm no attorney either, but do you think it's, it's good for the SEC to have one of their commissioners putting those sorts of comments out there in the public domain if they end up having to, to try to defend against the lawsuit? That doesn't seem... Well, it, that, was, that, was sort of the, that was sort of the point I was making is like, I think it's enormously helpful in a lawsuit environment to have this in the public record that there was clearly dissent within the regulator itself. Of course, that's helpful in making a case. Uh, now, a, a, again, when you get, get to the edges of this, I do think it's a matter of interpretation. I don't think this is a, like, obviously, this is subtle law. Um, and so I think it would be an opportunity for a court to put a stamp on regulation uh, in a fairly deregulatory way. Uh, but that's not really the point here. The point is, like, let's get back to what we're talking about, which is let's get investors access to an asset class that has turned out to be useful, um, you know, at least to some set of investors. I think we get there before something like this rolls all the way through the Supreme Court. Yeah. And so I, I guess on that note, let's assume the bitwise and grayscale filings uh, are disapproved. And I, I know we discussed this at the um, the exchange conference, but sentiment can change quickly, especially in crypto. And we did get uh, a couple of Twitter questions on this, uh, one from at James Shwee 8 and one from Metacrypt. But but here's the question. When spot Bitcoin ETF? <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm still a 2023 buyer on this. I just I, I don't see anything happening this year. Um, I think uh, post the midterms, it's not inconceivable. We get some clarity and we just throw things firmly into the CFTC, which I think is where things are definitely leaning from my read of the tea leaves at the moment, um, at which point uh, Bitcoin truly acts like digital gold, right? And these products just are basically GLD for Bitcoin, which is kind of what we all thought they were going to be anyway. They don't live underneath the, the 40 Act or any of that. So that to me seems like the most likely outcome. Uh, whether or not that requires, you know, giant surveillance agreements and all that stuff. I think that there's a middle path here. Um, I just don't think it happens until, say, you know, January, February of 2023, we start having real conversations about it. I think uh, I actually think it may be that we get uh, sort of the, the regulation of stable coins before that. Okay, what about something perhaps a bit more realistic? So we got a question from uh, Bob Heinemann. So at Bob Heinemann USA, um, he says, look, I'm bearish on crypto and want an inverse crypto ETF. Well, you got one. <laughs> uh, I would not mind if there were a three times leverage one. So uh, to, to your point, we did get the first inverse Bitcoin futures ETF launching today from ProShares. But any chance leveraged products could be close behind that? Uh, I think you'd you'd actually find the issuers a, a little reluctant to go with something like like three x on something like this. I mean, you got to do do the math. No, no issuer wants to be put in the position where they're mathematically closing funds on a monthly basis uh, because something pops thirty three percent and you've now zeroed out the NAV of your fund. Uh, I think it's it's quite reasonable to think we're going to have pretty active. Vol I mean, we've already got reasonable volumes in BITI today on the short side. I, I won't be surprised to see that that you know really develop a following. Uh, I could see maybe a one and a half x leverage version of it, uh, but I mean, come on, how much juice do you really need in your life? <laughs> but do you think the SEC would actually approve one of those? So let's just say it is one point five times. 
You think they could get their head around that? Uh, I think it'd be hard for them to say no, given that like that's sort of a leverage level they've let almost everything go through with. Okay. No, I, I agree. I mean, I've said for a long time, if the SEC is comfortable with a CME-traded Bitcoin futures market, then they should be um, comfortable with uh, sort of derivative products based on that same market. Yeah. And it's it's with futures, it's so easy to do, right? Because you just under collateralize. Yeah. No, 100%. Um, okay, before I let you go, this wasn't a Twitter question, but I've got to tell you, Dave, I get this question maybe more than any other question from people. And it's around what happens to GBTC's discount if and when an ETF yep. is approved, right? And, and and by the way, I want to be crystal clear here. Like, like, seriously, this is not investment advice. Everyone do your own homework. I'm not recommending this to anyone, period. End of story. However, Dave, the thought is that GBTC is basically... Um, free money sitting out there, right? So GBTC, last I checked, was at like a 35% discount. And the thought is, if there's an ETF conversion, then boom, an investor can quickly capture that, right? And it'd be a, actually a bigger return if you do the math than, than that 35%, right, to get back up to to even. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts here? And I guess maybe more importantly, what is the downside to this potential trade, or, or I would say bet? Uh, so, the, so the upside is obvious. Uh, you know, yes, if you buy it now at a thirty-five percent discount, and then in three weeks uh, it is approved without question to be converted to an ETF on a date certain to be named in the future. Uh, the instant that happens, that thing trades right back up to fair value because everybody will, you know, everybody will be in on the game. You don't actually even have to wait for it to turn into an ETF. The fact that it will be turning into an ETF will make the thing peg right back to parity. Uh, so yeah, that is your potential upside. I would point out that's pretty much the cap of your upside, right? Um, you'll get to that point plus whatever move happened in Bitcoin itself, because that would obviously, I think, be very positive for Bitcoin as the asset. So you would expect Bitcoin itself to also go up. The downside is there ain't no reason 35% is the floor, right? And so you could you could buy it now on that sort of lottery ticket uh, event risk, uh, you know, basis, uh, and in three weeks and be trading at 55% below fair value. There's, there's no there's no mechanical reason why it should trade at any price relevant to Bitcoin right now. Uh, it, there just isn't. There's no mechanism for it to unwind. There's no mechanism for Bitcoin to ever leave the trust. Uh, so it's, it is a bit of a, you know, I, I mean, I think I referred to it as a diamond hand Bitcoin motel, you know, like a roach motel, like the Bitcoins come in, but they don't go out, uh, short of, you know, corporate reorganization, shutting the thing down, like, you know, some, some other dramatic move to pry assets out of the fund, there's just no way that those coins are getting out. So there's really no way for it to ever arb out uh, unless it gets turned into an ETF. Well, and we should mention too, all the while, while you're waiting for that to happen, there is a 2% management fee as well that, that is being- Yeah, which is which is not nothing. And and the variability of the premium, um, you know, there are a number of folks out there that that track that. Um, like Hedgeye has a Bitcoin tracker for that that looks at the, you know, the variability in the discount to fair value. Uh, it is really pretty unpredictable. There's no particular reason why 35% is either high or low. Uh, and so you could get your calls right here uh, and sort of buy in on a day that's a great time to get in for Bitcoin. And Bitcoin could rally 20% and then you could still go nowhere, right? So it, I think the idea that somehow you're buying like a closed-end fund guaranteed return because it's trading at a discount, it's just not how this thing works. Well, Dave, fantastic stuff as always. You know I love talking to crypto, so thank you for joining me this week. Uh, so much fun, so much fun. That was Dave Nodig, financial futurist at Vetify.